Welcome to the Foresight Health Roundup podcast, Foresight Health's podcast series for healthcare revolutionaries. Outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. Hello again, everyone. This is Dave Burdett, news editor at Foresight Health. It is Thursday, March 2nd. We answered last week's question. March came in like a lion. I waited out two tornado warnings inside a truck stop just outside Champaign, Illinois, earlier this week. The good news is I got some early Christmas shopping done. That has nothing to do with our topic this week, and that's the future of primary care. We're going to look back at recommendations to improve primary care in the U.S., and we're going to look forward at a new scorecard that tracks our progress in meeting those recommendations to tell us whether we should feel hopeful or hopeless about the future of primary care are Dave Johnson, founder and CEO of Foresight Health, and Julie Merchantson, partner at Transformation Capital. Hi, Dave. Hi, Julie. How are you guys doing this morning? Dave? Well, unfortunately, I tested positive for COVID on Tuesday, so I've been quarantining this week. I was supposed to go to D.C. and meet with my buddy, Zeke Emanuel. When I told him I wasn't coming, he basically told me to get a prescription of Paxlovid. So I went on my one medical app, scheduled a Zoom office visit for 10 minutes later. On the Zoom, a very knowledgeable physician named Steve walked me through the medication and ordered the prescription. It was ready for pickup within an hour at the CVS across the street. Who says we don't know how to do primary care in this country? The only thing missing was the delivery drone dropping the meds into my hands. And that's coming soon. <laughs> you are a walking example of, or a sitting example of what we're going to talk about today. Thanks, Dave. Yep. Uh, hope you feel better. Julie, how are you? Well, I don't have nearly anything as exciting to report, but I have gone back on the road from winter storm San Francisco to sunny, beautiful, amazing weather in South Florida, back to drizzle and cold in Seattle. And I'm headed to cold desert tonight in Vegas. So back on the plane. I'll have COVID soon, Dave. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck. Yeah. And thanks for that transition to being back on the road, because before we talk about the future of primary care, I wanted to ask you about your truck stop buying behaviors. Dave, have you ever bought or seen anything unusual, food or otherwise, at a truck stop? (laughs) So many things. Maybe my favorite was at a truck stop, where else but in Wisconsin, They were selling those windshield stickers, you know, for the vehicle's Mm -hmm. back windshields. You've seen them, dad, mom, kids, pets, et cetera. What caught my eye was a sticker for the ass family. Family (laughs) members included smart, dumb, lazy, wise, tight, kiss, and hard. It was like the seven (laughs) dwarfs. I didn't, (laughs) I knew you'd like that one, Dave. I didn't buy it, but I wish I had. All right. Next time, think of me. Thank you. Okay. Julie, have you ever left a truck stop with something you never expected to have? You know, I can't say that I have a lot of truck stop memories, but when we were in college, we used to drive from basically eastern Pennsylvania down to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And there is a huge, like, welcome to South Carolina type of truck stop there that sold everything that I would never, ever want to buy. But we would spend hours in there on the way down because it was so much fun. So I I get the obsession, Dave. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of unusual items. For me, let's just say someone special is going to get a sauce holder for their car so they can neatly dip their fries or other fast food items. I mean, pure (laughs) pure genius and under $10. (laughs) Just fueling the healthcare economy right there. Yeah. I'm doing my part. 
Yeah. Now, if they can make a car holder for ketchup or honey mustard, we should be able to make a better primary care system in the U.S., right? And uh, there's your segue. Uh, In May 2021, the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine released a report that outlined five steps to, quote, make high-quality primary care available to all people living in the United States, close quote. The five steps are, one, pay for primary care teams, not doctors, to deliver services. Two, ensure that high-quality primary care is available to every individual and family in every community. Three, train primary care teams where people live and work. Four, design information technology that serves the patient, family, and the interprofessional team. And five, ensure that high-quality primary care is implemented in the U.S. Then last month, or almost two years after the initial report, the Millbank Memorial Fund released a scorecard to track our progress on those recommendations and released its first scorecard. The first scorecard found that the U.S. is systematically underinvesting in primary care. The primary care physician workforce is shrinking and gaps in access to care are growing. More adults say they don't have regular sources of primary care. We're training too few primary care physicians in community settings. And there's almost no federal funding available for primary care research. That's not a report card I'd like to bring home to my folks. Dave, what's your reaction to the initial report and the follow-up scorecard? And how can we reform the payment system to build a better primary care system? Well, the report is spot on. And the first report card is pathetic. Um, It's not just that the U.S. is bad at primary care. It's that we are willfully bad at it. Medical training, credentialing, institutionalized practices, the payment system, and the distribution of resources all conspire against the delivery of effective primary care services to the American people, despite the huge need. The result is that we have the highest per capita health care costs among OECD, aka rich (laughs) countries, and are near the bottom in life expectancy. It's not like we need to define what constitutes great primary care, although the National Academy report does a nice job of that. It's not a mystery how to deliver great primary care. Lots of other countries do it well. For Pete's sake, Cuba has far better primary care than the United States does. Perhaps the most damning statistic of all on this topic is that the U.S. spends about one-third as much on a percentage basis as the other OECD countries. 4.6 of total healthcare expenditure on primary care versus 14%. But it's even worse than that. Despite all the attention, primary care spending, as you noted, Dave, is going down as a percentage of overall healthcare spending in the US, not up. And not only that, most health systems turn their PCPs into referral machines and judge their performance based on how much revenue they generate for the system not on the health status of their patient panels, nor the health outcomes they generate in their practices. Bottom line, we spend far less on primary care services than other countries, and we expect less of those delivering the primary care services. It's probably because the COVID is making me grumpy, but I'm gonna say something controversial here. Last week in our discussion on value-based care, I made the statement, that we shouldn't expect the healthcare system writ large to deliver on the promise of population health. They already have enough to do reconfiguring their business practices to deliver the right care at the right time 
in the right place at the right price. Here's my controversial statement. Primary care is not healthcare, it's health. We should strip primary care out of the healthcare delivery system and make it the backbone of independent community health networks. As these community health networks grow to fill the enormous need for effective primary care services, American society can offset the cost of their growth by spending less on acute and specialty care services. As we discussed on last week's program, 52% of US healthcare spending is unnecessary, 52%. We've got a lot of wiggle room to fund great primary care services for all Americans. Dave, you also asked about payment models. That answer is easy. It should be a capitated per member per month payment that incentivizes the delivery of holistic primary care services. We should measure the performance of the organizations providing these primary care services on the risk-adjusted health status of their populations. I'll make one last observation. As I've mentioned before, I'm slogging my way through Paul Starr's Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Social Transformation of Medicine. And I've just finished the chapter on the post-World War II creation of the prepaid medical insurance plans and groups like Kaiser in California, Group Health in Seattle, and HIP in New York, HIP. I was struck by the massive opposition to these plans by the state medical societies in the AMA. They would not allow physicians from these groups to become members of their associations. They would not grant them admitting privileges in hospitals. And they discouraged employers and their employees from contracting with these group health plans. So just as when they fought attempts to provide for national health insurance coverage, medical societies and the AMA insisted on fee-for-service payment and the absolute right of patients to choose their physicians. Anything else was simply un-American. Is it any wonder that our exceptionally expensive healthcare system delivers such suboptimal results? It's doing what its proponents have designed it to do. We cannot change the system's outcomes without changing the system's structure. Emphasizing health as much or more than healthcare is where the real reform journey has to begin. Yeah, organized medicine does not like anyone taking food off its table. Thanks, Dave. Julie, any questions for Dave? So, Dave, I'm going to take you in a different direction because we typically always talk about physician practices when we talk about primary care. But we infrequently acknowledge the role of the vast network of community health centers in this country. And they play a huge role, but, you know, they usually exist in underserved areas serving underserved people. So in what way do you think CHCs, you know, can and can't be helpful in this situation? Yeah. Well, I wish their networks were far more vast than they actually are. There was a just released report by the National Association of Community Health Centers, CHCs titled Closing the Primary Care Gap, their report asserts that as many as 100 million Americans are medically disenfranchised. These individuals are disproportionately uninsured, poor, and children. And you're right, Julie, we need a lot more than just physicians to serve their daily health care needs. And I guess what struck me, so they say there are 100 million medically disenfranchised people. If the CHCs went away, uh, 15 million people would lose coverage. So they may seem vast, but they're only capturing a fraction of the need. CHCs exist to serve these individuals, but they're not anywhere near enough centers to meet the need. They struggle with budget, staffing, and the increasingly complex needs of their patients. Moreover, not all CHCs are created equal. Some like the Erie Health Centers in Chicago are really fantastic, others much less so. 
I suggested in my previous answer that the U.S. needs to strip primary care services out of the healthcare system and place them within community health networks. CHCs are an important manifestation of how that could happen. Big picture, we need to make investments in frontline health networks, not only physicians, but the whole panoply of nurses, nutritionists, therapists, health coaches, so on, to reach the 100 million people living without adequate access to health and healthcare services. As a society, we should redirect monies we're currently spending on unnecessary and or wasteful healthcare services into a much larger, more coordinated, cohesive nexus of self-sustaining community health-based networks. We can do this. We just have to have the courage to do it. Got it, Dave. Thanks. Julie, it's your turn. What's your reaction to the initial report and the follow-up scorecard? And how can market innovation build a better primary care system? Well, I would also not want to take this report card home to my parents, (laughs) but it's not surprising. And, you know, I slice the issues and innovative market solutions to them in, you know, a couple different just core ways. First, our traditional primary care models are, as we all know, under-resourced in things like financial and human resources. And, you know, many of the traditional models don't have state-of-the-art technology systems. They're not building a business model around engaging patients in a relationship with a practice or health center or with sufficient scale to really drive cost efficiencies over time. Hence, they don't have a lot of financial resources to go around in the team. So, you know, medical students coming out of school don't want to become primary care doctors and make bottom of the barrel when they could go become specialists. These are kind of basic economic issues in a country like ours. So the innovative models are taking a different approach to this. They're building on a technology backbone to make the practice of care easier for everybody who's there. And they think about including communications that are not only clinical in nature, but also include caregivers, family, and others involved in a patient's care. Innovative models are building, you know, just frankly, more financially successful business models, or at least they're trying. They're finding cost savings and scale, you know, all of which means theoretically higher pay for their providers or caregivers. And they're creating a balanced resource model with greater satisfaction and tying the performance to payment. So there's a lot in the business model that innovative solutions are doing differently. Second, um, patients are always frustrated, right? Like when you call and you have to wait days, weeks, months for an appointment and you don't get enough time with your PCP, you're annoyed. And these innovators are employing hybrid solutions that enable care through all sorts of alternate modes that create satisfaction for the patients. Chatbots, text, messaging. I mean, Dave did it earlier this week. Virtual options. And not unlike the community health centers that have, frankly, in my experience, Dave mastered this, innovative solutions are creating these care teams so that they can more appropriately share the load based on the training of a particular clinician or caregiver. And, you know, technology and care team models are solving some of the PCP supply issue. Third, insurance issues. Not everybody has insurance and it creates barriers. We talk about this all the time. And it's about to get worse, right? So innovative models are making cash pay pricing available that's both vastly lower than insured pricing and creating access and also leading to, you know, consumer-driven delivery models, which 
duh, like there's a lot to that that can, you know, be the lost leader concept in business, frankly. And last, you know, the scorecard recommends training in medically underserved areas where people live and work. And there's a lot to this. It also doesn't seem like it would solve the problem to me. But, you know, for instance, Geisinger has a really successful program where they will pay for medical school if you spend, I don't know, it's three, four, five years working at a Geisinger facility and, you know, which most of which are in rural areas. So there are some really successful models out there that have developed a business model around making sure that there's adequate supply in rural areas. So yeah, primary care is a huge issue and no, we're not going to solve it through more research funding. I thought that was kind of funny. I think we get <laughs> the beauty of primary care. But this is an area where innovation, frankly, is already happening. Got it. We're uh, learning from our mistakes and building a better model. I I love it. Thanks, Julie. Dave, any questions for Julie? The big retailers like CVS, Walgreens, Amazon, and Walmart are pretty smart. They're all investing in primary care. This may be overly simplistic, but isn't big retail's healthcare investment strategy to right-size primary care? and profit from the incremental savings this approach generates? What do you think? I mean, yes, there's so many reasons why big retail health want to keep customers closer to them, want to provide convenience in every way and be a home for those customers, for their retail needs, for their grocery needs, for their simple healthcare needs. So yeah, they're skimming the most cost-effective or you know, most appropriate Again, maybe coming back to lost leader concept to create that home for customers and they're doing it at scale. And I can't emphasize enough how much at scale means to a retailer compared to so many of these health systems that have integrated over the last 20 or 30 years. You know, many of those are still just getting the back office integrated. So they've really just put their brands together. They've never really tried to cut costs and do what big business does well, which is find every cost efficiency possible to run in a slick, narrow, margin-heavy way. Interesting. Yeah, big changes coming there. So we'll, we'll see how that plays out. Thanks, Julie. Well, I did get my second shingles booster this week, and I had to remember myself to get it within six months after the first one. It sure would have been nice if my PC reminded me. And I'm thinking maybe I should buy her something from that truck stop next time I'm in Champaign. (laughs) Oh, you're sweet. They had a lot of cool hats there. Maybe she'd like one of those or (laughs) find some window stickers. <laughs> now let's briefly talk about other big healthcare news that happened this week. Julie, what else should we be talking about? Well, I just wanted to keep on our radar how broken the system is when I saw an article this week that Cleveland Clinic losses exceeded a billion in 2022. So here we have Cleveland Clinic, you know, arguably very successful inpatient acute specialty, incredible brand model, working across borders in the UK, in the Middle East, and still record losses. So even the most progressive systems on some of the business model diversification are still suffering. Yeah, pretty scary numbers. Thanks, Julie. Dave, what other healthcare market news is worth mentioning this week? Well, the CDC just released its biannual youth risk behavior survey. And the results are downright scary, particularly among adolescent girls. 
there's an epidemic of despair. One factoid to illustrate the scale of the challenge, a third of teenage girls, a third, seriously considered suicide in 2021, up from 19%, which still seems high to me, in 2011. What's happened in the last 10 years? Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, and the isolation and social pressure that come with them. Over 90% of the girls report using social media many for hours every day. Then came COVID. This issue isn't going away. Also very, very scary and sobering findings there. Thanks, Dave, and thanks, Julie. And that is all the time we have for today. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we discussed at today's show, please visit our website at foresighthealth.com. And don't forget to tell a friend about the Foresight Health Roundup podcast. Subscribe now and don't miss another segment of the best 20 minutes in healthcare. Thanks for listening. I'm Dave Berta for Foresight Health.